of nine programmes called Fiction at the Friary and on Campus. Recorded on location in UCC and at the Friary Bar in Cork City. We are now standing at the Mardyk Arena grounds. There is a proud tradition of sport in University College Cork. With 56 clubs in UCC, we offer a diverse range of activity, both competitive and recreational. Each club offers something unique. Although field sports were played in UCC, or Queen's College Cork as it was known before independence, as far back as the 1880s, the Mardyk was first acquired by Queen's College Cork in 1911 and in a joint lease arrangement with Cork County Football Club and Cork Constitution Rugby Club. The grounds, which had previously hosted the Cork International Exhibition in 1902 and 1903, were bought by UCC in 1922. Since then, the Mardyk has become synonymous with not only the sporting life of the university, but the sporting life of Cork. Among the many top sports stars to play or compete at the grounds were the first GAA president, Morris Davin, Olympic gold medal winning hammer thrower, Dr. Patrick O'Callaghan, and acclaimed athletes, Eamon Coughlin, John Tracy, and Sonia O'Sullivan. On July 3rd, 1984, when hosting Cork City Sports, the Mardyk witnessed a world record when Russian hammer thrower, Yorick Sadiq broke several records in one evening to the delight of the large crowd. We're here in the covered stand at the Mardyke UCC and we're going to be talking to Tyg Coakley. Um, Tyg, we're here talking and looking out at a sports field. Can you maybe tell us to start off with the part that sport plays in your own writing and life? Yes, Daniel, and in fact this location means a lot to me because when I went to UCC back in the late 70s, I played hurling here for four years and we actually won four Fitzgibbon Cups amazingly. But one of the things that always amazed me about sport in Ireland is how little writing there was about sport. We're obsessed about sport and we love our literature but they never seemed to come together. So when I went back to UCC a few years ago, I did an MA in creative writing, and I had an idea that I would write, I would bring sport into my writing, and that's what happened. I wrote a book called The First Sunday in September, which was published in 2018, and it came directly out of the MA. So not only did I play hurling uh, here in UCC, in my youth, but I wrote in UCC, and I wrote as part of the MA, and the book came directly out of that course. And I'm looking here at the goalposts. Um, is there something about the tensions and psychology of sport that feeds into the writing as well and the writing process? There is. It's amazing to me. I don't play uh, sport anymore. I am too old now. But when I did start to write seriously a few years ago, and that happened in my MA, it amazed me the similarities both in the process of writing and in sport, the tensions, all the work that goes in the background, all the practice, all the revisions and all that kind of thing and then it comes out into the writing and in, in the reading process is very like being a fan, a spectator at a match where you're watching this happening before your eyes and 
Yeah, to me, the, the two are very similar. In fact, I think I conflate both of them. And I think when I give up sport, I almost turn to writing as a consolation that I couldn't play sport anymore. I think the two are very similar. It's pouring rain outside here, um, Tyke, as we talk. Uh, would you ever have played in this kind of rain? I did. Did you? I, I did, Madeline, and it's it's a, it's a difficult thing to do. But one of my most vivid experiences was actually playing hurling in snow, and that really was exceptional. I was playing for the Cork Under-16 team, and we were playing Kerry in a match in Ballyhoig, and just before the game started, the snow started to come down. And it was an eerie experience because of the silence with the snow and the kind of quiet and the usual sounds that were happening, but they were all exaggerated. And that's a vivid memory for me, even though it happened over 40 years ago. I remember that. But playing in the rain is not very pleasant. But in Ireland, especially in the Fitzgibbon Cup that I played in here in UCC, it happens in January and February. And we usually played in the rain. It wasn't the exception. It was the norm. Wow. Um one of the things that I admire most about your collection, Tyg, is um, that uh, it's not just fiction about sporting endeavour, but about the emotions and the heartbreak and the human condition uh, that surrounds this particular activity and beyond, I would say. Um, uh, what are you working on next? At the moment, I'm actually working on a book of essays about sport. I can't seem to get it out of my head. And when I wrote the first Sunday in September, you're right, it's not a book about sport, really, because I don't think you can write a novel or a book of stories about sport. It's about people and about people's emotions. And sport, like literature, is very much about emotions. But so much happens outside the pitch. Really, what happens inside the white lines is only a very small element. I mean, too much focus, to me, is on what happens happens between the lines and it, it's where it happens but it's what happens in the people who are watching or who are playing what happens inside them and their loved ones and their enemies and everyone involved that's really the thing that fascinates me so in this book of essays I'm trying in non-fiction to prize out I suppose my own personal experiences of sport as a player and as a fan now and trying to explore them and the emotions and the feelings around them rather than the physical aspects of the sport itself. My dad used to always say, it's not about whether you win or lose, it's about how you play the game. How do you feel about that? That's true in theory and that's the way it should be. We'd love it if it was like that. To me, actually, sport is mostly about losing, which <laughs> kind of seems strange, because that's the general experience. And I actually think it has that in common also with literature. I think a lot of literature is about loss. It's about an object of desire that you can't attain or you want desperately to attain, and it's just out of reach. And that kind of tension, that struggle, the agon that goes on there that we see in matches as well, and we see in theatre and in literature, that's the real obsession. That's why I'm so interested in sport, and that's why I'm inclined to write about it. For any writers who might just be starting out and making their first attempts at writing, in sport, people have their practice and training regimes. Have you any tips you would give an emerging writer for starting out writing? Yeah, the main thing is to write, just to write and to write and to write. 
obviously reading is hugely important as well and to keep reading because in the way that a young sports person or an emerging sports person would watch sport obsessively I think as writers we have to read uh, obsessively but the main thing is to write and to keep going and there will be knocks in the same way that in sport there are knocks you know there will be rejection slips coming back you know you send stuff out and it hurts and you think oh am I doing the right thing but I think if you have an instinct to write it's something inside you that you can't deny and you just have to keep going and keep going find other writers try to be in a community of writers read all the time make friends and just keep going when you talk about being in a community of writers, um, Tyke, how do you feel about the writing scene in Cork and UCC and all of the other institutions? Do you find that um, living in Cork is a good place to be for a writer or are you fed up of the place? No, I think it's a wonderful place and one of the reasons I knew instinctively that I, uh, before I did my MA in creative writing in UCC a few years ago, I didn't really know any writers and suddenly when I was in the class, I was in the class of 22, I, I knew 21 other writers immediately, I knew the faculty who were all writers and that's really important and Cork generally is an amazing place to be a writer, an emerging writer, you know, you have all these events, we just had the Cork International Show Story Festival, there's another festival, the World Book Fest earlier in the year. We have Fiction at the Friary once a month. We have all these events going on. UCC have incredible writers coming every year. They have events going on all the time in the library and so on. So I think we're very lucky here in Cork and long may it last. Dukas. What I want most at this moment is to leave my seat on the stand and walk down the steps and turn right to the bar I passed on the way up. It would be quiet with the match due to begin and as welcoming as a long-loved dog. I imagine the first taste of the cool stout as it flows from the plastic glass into my mouth, the bliss. I'm not speculating here, it's what I know. I can smell it, I can savour it. The chill pliancy of the glass in my hand, my thumbprint and the condensation. The black creaminess, the soft soothing cotton woolness of it. The unseen roars coming down the concrete steps would carry no threat as I lean on the bar counter, drink in hand. I hope you will never long for that type of bliss, Sean. I worry sometimes that I might have passed it on to you. You know the word ducus, you know what it means. Recovery, to be always in recovery and never recovered. That's where I am in my own little limbo. But limbo is better than hell and that's where I used to be, dragging others down with me. I wonder, why am I thinking about this now of all times? The truth of it is that thoughts like these are rarely from my mind, but I'm okay with that. Even at my lowest ebb, you know, I always seem to be able to hold close the idea that I would survive, I would be sober. I would be able to call myself a man, a husband, maybe even a father again someday. Would you do one thing for me, Sean? If you ever have a son, don't put a hurley into his hand. For the love of God, just don't. I know it could deprive me of ever seeing my grandson on a pitch, but I'd hate for you to ever have to go through what I'm going through right now. I look up at the long concrete beams of the Hogan stand roof above our heads. If I knew their length, depth and cover ratio, I could calculate their structural load capacity. A herring gull glides by. I watch the arrays of swaying colours, red and white, saffron and blue. 
A previously quiet and nondescript woman in the row behind stands up and screams, Up the banner! A dusting of spittle erupts from her wide open mouth and drizzles on unnoticing heads below. Others rise as if in rejoinder and bellow at the hurlers who now file into two lines behind the Artane band. I stay sitting, trying to breathe, looking at the wrinkles on the tweed jacket of the Cantorp man in front of me. Your poor mother this morning. Neither of us slept a wink, of course, and then she was up out of bed early, all go fussing over my sandwiches, which she proceeded to ruin by putting mayonnaise on the ham instead of mustard. I didn't have the heart to tell her. The state of her at the door, wringing her hands. He'll be all right, won't he? Will they win? What if they lose? He'll be fine, I replied. Very likely it was a lie. Sport is cruel, crueler than you can imagine, Sean, though you might just find out today. I tell myself to breathe and I stand up. I watch the 15 corkmen march behind the band as they pass my section of the stand. The noise is apocalyptic. I scrutinize your body language. You're first in the line as captain and I see a rangy, dark-skinned, short-haired 28-year-old hurley held in your right hand, helmet in the other. You're the spitting image of my brother Johnny when he was your age. You've a languid walk, jaunty it might even seem. Good. Sean, when your mother and I gave you up for adoption, it broke our hearts. But you have to realise that we were so young. Evelyn was barely 17 when she fell pregnant, and I'd just turned 18. We hadn't a clue. We were in shock. We were ashamed. They made us feel ashamed. We were frightened. Evelyn's father was, well, to call him a vicious dictator would be an understatement. But I should have fought him. I should have. Our only consolation is that Michael and Anne are such good people and that they have reared you so well. As the teams break away from the band, I wonder if there is an open meeting going on at this very moment somewhere in the inner city. There usually is. Pat would understand and pick me up later. It wouldn't be the first time. I remember going to one on Dorset Street when I was in vigil with Evelyn when she was due with your sister Roisin in the Rotunda. Probably just a half an hour's walk from here. My name is Tim and I'm an alcoholic. I touched the phone in my top pocket. The app would tell me where to go. I rise again with all the others and face the flag for the national anthem. The words appear on the big screen. A blonde woman sings from a dais near the sideline. An elderly corkman on the opposite end of the aisle to me weeps. Veins of tears flow down his hollow bearded cheeks. He fears it will be his last time. I can see it in his eyes, in the pained passion of his delivery. The song ends in the usual shortened climax and everybody sits as the players move to their positions. You take your place at left half back instead of on the right where you were selected. Pat elbows me. They put him on McMahon, he says. I nod. If only I could breathe. I was so happy when I found out that you were growing up in Glenmire, the home of Sarsfields, and that Michael was a hurling man. When you were eight, Evelyn did something she shouldn't have. She went to her sister-in-law, who worked in St. Margaret's Adoption Society. Somehow she persuaded Helen to show her your file. Oh, I'll never know, but I have my suspicions. The truth is, Sean, that Roisin didn't make it. We lost her beautiful baby sister on a hateful day in May, in a cold room in the hospital. And her perfect little eyes were the same shade of blue as the sky directly over your head now while the referee readies himself to throw in this litter. Your mother was never the same again, and you know she was younger on that day than you are now. 
we couldn't have any more children. The doctors made that clear because of what they called a major chromosomal disorder. How you escaped, they couldn't tell us. But getting pregnant again might have been disastrous for Evelyn. Then, of course, there was only you. But you weren't there either, or only as a kind of shadowy reminder of everything we'd done wrong. I never really know how I feel about hurling. There are times, and this is definitely one of them, when I hate this crazy game. And I play down the five All-Ireland finals I played in myself, and the three I won. But then, for a few hours today, I had been receiving homage from old friends and foes in and around Croke Park. And I feel it is my due, though nobody will ever hear me say it. I can see a couple of Kilkenny men a few rows down from where I'm sitting. Tommy Brennan and JJ Heffernan from Ballyhale. In some ways, they look just like ordinary middle-aged men out at a match, with their flat caps, bent noses and thinning hair. Sean, they are anything but ordinary, I can tell you that for nothing. The things that they've done, and the things that they know, my only hope is that, after today, you will know some of them too. I watch your body position as you close down the space created by the movements of McMahon and the other Clare forwards. You've been coached well. Joe Ryan and Dinny Young did a great job with you. Today is really all about temperament and I think yours is just fine. I don't think you're a great loser, but as Vince Lombardi said, show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. You got that from me. On the way up here this morning in the car, I had a crazy idea. I daydreamed that I'd congratulate you after the match if we win, that I'd seek you out, walk straight up to you and shake your hand, that I'd hug you even, that I'd grab you by the shoulders and look into your eyes, as a father should look into his son's eyes on winning glory. What did I think I'd see there? Or what did I think you'd see? And what would I say? I don't know. I just don't know. I'm not sure what I was thinking. Crazy thoughts. I was thinking crazy thoughts, Sean. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Fiction at the Friary. Uh, this slightly um, grey February afternoon, but we're going to cheer you all up here. Um, with some brilliant stuff, we've got our guest author, uh, Ethel Rowan. <laughs> so Ethel is going to read a short extract and uh, then we're going to have a chat. Thank you, Ethel. Hello, everybody. Um, I really am delighted to be here and thank you. I think that's probably the loveliest intro I've ever received. So thank you. Oh. Um, I am going to read, and um, my reading will probably be about as long as the intro, not much longer, I promise. Um, and um, I'm going to read one of the stories from the forthcoming collection that's coming out next year. Uh, the collection is called In the Event of Contact, and this story is Into the West, and I'm going to begin at the beginning, so I don't need to set it up for you. Fintan removed the marinated skirt steak from the fridge, wanting the meat to reach room temperature before he placed it on the barbecue. He pulled bowls from a cabinet and filled them with the various fixings, including the lime wedges and his homemade guacamole. He surveyed the colourful spread, pleased with himself. It was far from beef tacos he was raised. He 
scanned the kitchen and the wooden deck through the French doors, confirming everything was in order. He poured himself a glass of fruity Cabernet and saluted the lovely home. A Tipperary man and raised in a two-up, two-down terraced house, he never imagined he would someday own a detached, four-bedroom, Mediterranean-style home on a tree-lined street in a prime San Francisco neighborhood, minutes from the ocean. A foreman for an Irish-owned engineering construction crew, he also would never have believed there was such money to be made laying pipe beneath the city's hilly streets. He tugged on the cuffs of his purple shirt and rubbed the flat of his hand over his silk chest, wondering if he should go change, if the bold shade, fancy fabric and tailored fit weren't too much. He glanced at the tiny digital clock on the face of the oven. He had time. He started up the hardwood stairs and then changed his mind. He looked good in an eggplant in sleep. Blonde, tanned, toned and blue-eyed, he was often mistaken for a Californian until he started to speak and the telltale brogue spilled out. He swerved at the bottom of the stairs, passing the front door. He saw a flash of his wife, Liz, arriving home. A doula, she was working yet another night shift and wouldn't return until morning, unless she was tricking him. The doorbell rang. Katie was early. He thought he heard a key scratch the front lock. He pulled the door open with an uneasy feeling, half expecting to find Liz. Katie's arm shot out, holding the bottle of wine midair. Her yellowed smile struck him again, how it was a relief from the sameness of Americans' pearly whites. Also notable was her lean height. She was nudging six feet tall and her long tousled copper hair, her lively brown eyes. He was doubly relieved to see she had also dialed up her look, the black cocktail dress with a neat bow at her waist, wrapping her like a present. A warm, forgiving evening, they moved out to the deck and Finton powered on the barbecue. They clinked wine glasses and faced the manicured garden. Growing up, his family's backyard was the size of a small rug. The line of deep green trees in front of the rear wall blocked out the neighbor's house, but they could hear the children playing hoops. Sounds violent, Casey said, smirking. He chuckled. How was your day? I didn't save anyone. Lose anyone? No. That's a good day's work then. True. He recalled the emergency room and his dislocated knee, an accident on the job, and the worst pain he was ever in. How her green nurse's scrubs added to her Mayo accent. How her face lit up when she realized he was Irish too. How it hurt to laugh. And your day, she said, lots of pipe laid and we all survived the trenches. Excellent, she said, bringing her glass to his for the second time. Now feed me. He busied himself with the grill, the flavored meat. They moved inside and enjoyed dinner at the kitchen island. Afterwards, she said, I'm impressed, especially with guac. Did you really make it from scratch? I did. Then what about dessert? Her hand pressed her stomach. There's no way that's good. I don't have any. <laughs> their laughter faded. Her thumb wiped the smear of pink lipstick from her wine glass, and she glanced over her shoulder, her brow worried. You're sure this is okay? I feel like I shouldn't stay much longer. Relax. Liz is working all night. She won't be home until mid-morning. He poured more wine. It's kind of 
creepy these new mothers paying, paying someone else to tend their babies. I mean, I understand during labor and delivery, but afterwards? Makes me think of those wet nurses, she shuddered. Another woman breastfeeding your baby? I don't get it. Liz isn't doing anything like that, obviously, and she loves the job. He didn't point out that Katie and Liz were both caregivers, doubting Katie would appreciate the comparison. He wasn't sure he did either. It hit him that his mother's visit was three days away, another woman to add to the messy mix. Katie remarked on the orange-red sunset. They talked about the weather locally and back in Ireland, how climates were changing the world over. They kissed and moved downstairs. In the guest bedroom, the bare ceiling bulb yellowed the dark, cold space. They removed their own clothes, a spectator sport. He lifted her onto his hips and, kissing her hard, dropped onto his buttocks on the king bed. She pushed him onto his back, her nipples bullets, her forehead already glistening. She was more intoxicating than all that wine, and this mattress was softer than his own upstairs full-on welcoming. I'm going to leave Fenton and Casey there. <laughs> wanted to ask you, um, can you tell us about the, this, uh, the Design Prize and how that works? Um, yeah, um, Design are a independent publisher, they're out of um, Michigan and they hold an annual book contest uh, in fiction, it's for both the short stories, a collection of short stories and the novel and they have non-fiction. Uh, book prize also um, and I had shopped around the collection with some small independent Irish publishers uh, and the UK actually with the thought that most of the stories are set kind of Ireland, London and uh, within the States they're usually dealing with expats so I thought that would be a good fit. Unfortunately none of the uh, publishing houses that I submitted to felt the same way so I just kept working at it and working at it and um, I don't know something gave and I, and I felt I'd cracked the collection and it just felt a lot stronger to me and honestly the book prize was I felt it was a long shot so honestly when the editor called me and told me I won I, I blubbered on the phone. Yeah. I kept thinking I hope she didn't record it because it was not pretty but yeah so that'll come out uh, May of 2021 which seems really far away but I'm actually happy I, you know I let it sort of simmer and it gives me an opportunity to come back to it again and you know, publishing now is such a business, so, you know, the editor is sort of keen to really set it up so that it's marketed and promoted well, and, and I feel really, really good about them. They're an independent press, but I have a great rapport with the editors, and they have a really good track record. I'm a big fan of, of the books they publish and some of their authors, so. Yeah, it's wonderful. Congratulations. Yeah. I'm going to hand over to Danielle, who's probably bursting with uh, questions. I have so many questions. Um, <laughs> I will share the mic so we will allow our audience to ask some questions as well in a little while. Um, so pleased to hear that you have another collection on the way, Ethel. I'm a big fan of your writing and I have two of your earlier short story collections here. Thanks. Both wonderful, so I'm looking forward to reading the next one. And Ethel, by the way, has won many other awards for her stories and I'm thinking you won the Brian McMahon 
Mahan Award a moment, didn't you? So, um, yeah, can't wait to read this one. Um, the characters in that piece that you read for us there, so we have Ireland in San Francisco. In terms of your own writing journey, can you just tell us a little bit about that? Were you writing before you went to San Francisco? How did that start and how do the two countries relate and interact in, in your writing? Yeah. Um, so I think my first sense of, you know, I love to write. I've always, you know, I loved reading as, as a tween, as a teenager. Um, and I remember English was like my favorite class in, in secondary school here. And I remember writing a, what I thought was an essay. And you know, back then it was sort of a very uh, narrow curriculum, if you will. And the assignment was, here's your topic sentence and write an essay. And it turned out I wrote a short story in response to the topic sentence. And it wasn't an essay. And uh, my English teacher pulled me outside of the classroom and said, you know, I feel terrible. I have to give you a C because you didn't meet the requirements of the assignment. I said, but I love your short story. And I can't remember what it was about. I remember it was about an old man. It was something about swallows. I, I don't remember. But it was the first time I honestly felt that I was good at something. You know, that I had this surprising response to something that I did. And that stuck with me. And um, I sort of kept writing and sort of just myself, journals, that kind of thing. And when I went to San Francisco, um, I was 22. And um, between like my teens and that, it was all myself. But I don't know what happened when I went to San Francisco. I started uh, publishing with a local Irish newspaper there. Just random columns, that kind of thing. And then I just stopped because life got busy and I very much felt fell into an office job and I worked nine to five. And uh, aside from reading, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to writing. And then I noticed I was drifting from job to job and I was very unhappy in every job. I had like that Sunday night blues, Monday morning dread. And I started to feel like a failure. And I don't know, something switched at some point and I realized I've just been doing the wrong thing all these years. And I spoke with my husband and we were about to start a family. And I said, I think this is the perfect point in my life to go. I never went to college in Ireland. I said, I'm going to go to college and I want to pursue writing. And thankfully he supported me. Um, and I went to school and I studied English and then I did a master's in creative writing, which you don't need to do. I'm sure you all know that. You don't need a master's, but I just happened to do it. And um, really since then I've been writing. And once my children started school, then it was a pretty regular practice. Um, and I started to publish fiction then as opposed to the columns. That's a long answer, I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, I have one of your collections here, and I'm looking at the title, Hard to Say. And one of the many things I admire in your writing is how you don't shy away yeah. from the difficult stuff. And could you tell us maybe a little bit about the challenges, I suppose, that you find in, in facing the very dark stuff in writing? Yeah, um, I have found when I'm writing the work, I'm absolutely fearless. I don't, I'm so in the story, I'm so in the characters. I always usually start with the character. That's what gets me going and brings me to the page in that particular story. So I'm always thinking about the character. I'm honestly just always trying to tell the best story I can. It's only when it comes to publishing. I have this very strange kind of ability to detach, I think, you know, that I can feel like 
oh, nobody's going to read this. You know, it's okay. It's just me and the page. But then when I start sending it out to the world and it gets published, uh, it's terrifying. I would just say the more I do it, mm. the less terrifying it gets. And do you think, is that keeping secrets, is that more of an Irish thing? Or is it also a San Francisco thing? Yeah, I think it's human nature. I would say, though, I think the Irish are a particularly reticent culture. I think it's very difficult to orally and physically, and not terribly, you know, with affection, all of that. Certainly for my generation, I see it changing enormously. Like now I hear, you know, parents and family members telling each other they love each other. And, you know, I wasn't raised like that. So I wasn't something. In fact, the only time I ever told my father I loved him, he said, ah, you've been living in America too long. <laughs> process and how you put a story together, the building of that story, would you say that you usually harvest elements of your own life to start with and then fictionalise them or do you start with a fictional idea and your own life kind of works its way in? Yeah, I, I, would, I never ever set out to be autobiographical. Never. That's not my intention. In fact, in an ideal world, I would keep it all out. But, you know, I think we all have our compulsions and we have our patterns. And, you know, I see the same themes repeating over and over in my own work. But I see it in other writers' work, too. I think it is just what it is. And there are certain things that we feel driven to tell. Um, so I see that repetition, if you will, but it, no, it's never my intention for it to be autobiographical. I usually start, I, I, you know, I never know what's going to get me to the page, but it's always something, and it's, it is character, but it's usually like a snippet. I've told this story a few times now, so I'm going to have to change my material, but I think this is a great example. I was on the bus quite some time ago now, but I overheard a snippet of conversation between a mother and her daughter. Her daughter was about six years of age. And the mother said to her daughter, you know, now when we go home, you've got to be a good girl. Like, daddy's lost his job. Daddy's very stressed. You've got to be a good girl. And the little girl looked up at her mother and she said, don't worry, mom, I will drive daddy happy. <laughs> and just that, right? So I'm here conversations and they all wash over me and that absolutely stayed because I felt there I already had I've got my three characters yeah. I've got my dad I've got my mom I've got the daughter for the child to use that quirky turn of phrase I just love that like I love everything unexpected whether it's at the sentence level level the characters you know what the story reveals to me all of that so I'm always looking for surprise and I think my spark is always surprised at whatever level it's at. But could you just tell, for, for the sake of the audience, tell us a little bit about how The Weight of Him came about, if you don't mind. Yeah, well, that novel actually ties into perfectly into everything that we talked about, you know, the, the stories I feel driven to tell, the terror that comes with that, the fear of readers' responses, of the people in my life, their responses, all of that. Um, I probably wrote that novel over the course of 10 years and I, I have no doubt the only reason it took so long was fear. I was afraid to finish it because then the stage is you, you send it out in the world and you try to get it published and it's going to be read. And um, It's a novel that deals with two 
big issues and, yeah. and they don't seem like they pair very well and that's something that I also struggled with. Uh, my main character in, in the novel is Billy Brennan and he's a 40-ish uh, old father um, and at the opening of the novel it's five weeks after his oldest son uh, Michael at 17 took his own life um, and then you add to that already sort of difficult story that uh, Billy Brennan is 400 pounds and, and this, the novel is, is, is about the journey that he's sort of then propelled on after the death of his son and the surprising links I found between you know Michael taking his own life and, and Billy struggling with who he is and why he is who he is and just this idea of, of the rejection of the self and you know Michael ultimately rejects himself and took his own life and, and Billy was at a point in his life where he had rejects himself and actually hid inside. You know, the whole storytelling was to get to the point of, you know, who is Billy? Who was Michael? And the why of what they both did. And and Billy discovers that he's basically hiding inside himself. And uh, Michael took a much more tragic and permanent way to, to hide, um, to just step off uh, the radar, if you will. So um, how that came about was another snippet of conversation um, I overheard uh, two elderly gentlemen in a pub and uh, they were mourners after a funeral and they uh, were talking about a, an obese woman sitting in the corner and one said to the other, you know, the grief might actually kill her before her weight does. Mm. And I couldn't get that out of my mind. I went home that night and I couldn't sleep. And again, it was the questions. And the stories are always about questions and you're wondering what the answer is. Yeah. So, well, I was wondering, well, who was that woman? Who did she lose? Um, you know, why did she become who she is? That type of thing. But when I started to write, after about three, four pages of this main character being female, Billy came onto the page. And I think part of that was also my wanting to um, reject any sort of, uh, it becoming too personal. Because I felt if I stuck with the female character who was obese and I was trying to understand her grief and her personal tragedy, uh, I was going to end up writing about my mother. So I think subconsciously it became Billy Brennan so that I could really take a fair crack at writing this imaginative story and just seeing what came out. My name is Fiona White and this is a short excerpt from the beginning of my novel which is set in 7th century Northumbria. It tells the story of Wilfred, a young boy who was taken to be a monk at the monastery of Lindisfarne. They came for him at twilight he spied them, two shadows skimming down Wolfstan's hill. He thought at first they might be heading eastward to the village. But when they reached the stream, instead of bridging it at the hazel tree, where the flow of water is light and the crossing over narrow so that a horse may pass with just a few steps, they followed the stream downward till they reached Ailes Ford. Here they crossed and continued down to the hedgerow, which was the northward mark of his father's land and now Wilfred's heart was beating fast as the two figures, no longer distant shadows but darkly clothed and hooded beings, passed through the gap in the hedgerow. And it seemed to him as they gathered pace and advanced towards the house that they blocked his view of Wolfstan's hill and Davis Ford and the stream and the hazel tree and that the whole land was filled with their presence. 
Oswina, the servant, met the riders at the outer wall and directed them towards the house. Wilfred swung down from the branch of the tree he'd been sitting on and followed at a distance. He picked up the hazelwood stick he usually carried with him and busied himself with drawing patterns on the ground, glancing up every few moments to see what was happening. The men had dismounted and Oswina was leading the horses to the stable. Wilfred's parents were standing at the door of the house. He noticed how his father pulled back his shoulders and lifted his head. He had been carrying himself with something of a hunched gait recently. He could not see his mother properly. She was standing a little behind his father. One of the men was a little older than the other, and it was to him that his father first extended greeting. They exchanged brief words that Wilfred did not catch. His mother did not speak. Neither did the other man, who stood back a little from his companion and kept his head down, eyes to the ground, hands joined loosely together. But when they went to enter the house, this man, going in last, turned around, looked back at Wilfred, and stared hard. The man had not drawn back his hood, and Wilfred could not see his expression clearly, but something in that look made Wilfred shiver. Wilfred had known that something was astir. He could smell it. The air was thick with the crackling of roast pig and the odours of charred flesh, garlic and rosemary, combined with the sweet whiff of dough and stewing apples. Footsteps about him were hurried. Voices matched the urgent movement of the bodies that carried them, now fierce whispers, now loud commands. Even Oswina was unsettled. He kept coming to check on Wilfred, warning him that his father would gladly take a grip to him if he even thought about wandering behind, beyond the boundaries of the hedgerow. And every now and then he glanced up to Woodstone's hill, rubbed his hands together and frowned. Wilfred was not minded to heed Oswina. He was too distracted by the rushings and stirrings in the house, the pungent smells, the noise. He wanted to run from the house, climb the hill, watch the swallows fly off, follow them to wherever it was they hid when the days grew shorter. But Oswina said he was not permitted. He might not even exercise his horse. He must keep the house at all times. All day long he wandered from the kitchen to the stables to the pigsty, dragging his stick behind him, carving swirls and signs in the ground, watching his parents and Oswina and the slave girl as they went to and fro like geese to the hive, ignoring the inquiring looks and nudges of the villagers as they too noted the smoke from the large fire in the great hall swirl up into the sky and they sniffed the air fat with the smell of food. Then, finally, as the sun began to sink behind Wolfstan's hill and the two shadows appeared, Silence fell on the house, and Wilfred knew the thing they had been waiting for had arrived, and he didn't know whether to be relieved or afraid. My name is Lisa Cedric, and this is an excerpt from my story, The Loaded Deck. I started shuffling, keeping the ace of cups at the bottom of the pack. People pay me for rosy futures, so if the spread is looking bleak, I can throw it into the mix. Everyone wants the lovers to star in their own fairy tale of romantic bliss, but it's too risky to have such an obvious card up your sleeve. The ace of cups with its overflowing chalice, that's my baby. Send them away satisfied with the hope of bountiful happiness from a non-specific cause. 
but Clara's orphan beggar expression wasn't sporting, so I ignored the player's tenet that dealing in truth makes for a dangerous game. I upped the ante by letting her cut be real. My tarot reading, like so much in my life, started as a bet with my old mate Jackie. We grew up a few houses apart, first playing tag on a muddy patch of green, then daring each other to teenage pranks across the estate. Our life on the streets helped our home lives dim, and he'd been my friend for as long as I'd understood the word. We shed everything except a bed. Once, when we were teenagers and Jackie was complaining that none of his dates were put out, I offered to have sex with him. He laughed, and that was that. Jackie's tight, wore short skirts and vapid smiles, but they came and went like dealer buttons. I was his lucky chip. In our early twenties, we became poker partners. Not buddies now partners, a nice little scam that involved us fishing together in casinos. Teamwork narrows the odds. We never went for the high stakes that might attract attention, but we made a decent living travelling around the mid-range circuit. We were good. Then he met Catherine. Right from the start he talked about her too much. Everything led back to Catherine. The rain, a kebab, that donkey on table three who didn't know he had a flush. Always back to Catherine. But he never introduced her. He said she wouldn't understand that he didn't see me as a girl. So when he told me a clairvoyant had assured her she'd found her one true love, I wasn't inclined to humour him. It's bullshit, I said. Same reads we use every time. I even staked my week's earnings that I could persuade her that I too had the gift. He was nervous about it, didn't want to stray into dishonesty, and this from the proud divisor of our code of card-revealing gestures. But Jackie could never resist a bet. <coughs> He did tell her it was a wager. The lie was that I was a bartender's wife and that Jackie had questioned my powers were real. That was my idea. I knew he was so anxious for our friendship to be invisible that he wouldn't see the advantage this gave me. Catherine was gonna be on the wife's side. She was that sort of woman. It was easy to convince her of my fortune-telling prowess. He had given me so much information that I had to restrain myself to keep it plausible. I claimed that the cards warned of financial troubles, easy pickings for anyone involved with the gambler. But I am fond of Jackie, so I did tell her that her knight would be loyal. This proved to be prophetic. I won my money, but I lost Jackie when Catherine saw me leaving his house. We deceived her, he said, over our last beer together. She'll forgive me, but she won't forgive us. And decades of friendship were thrown on the discard pile. I salvaged the soothsaying. It took me two months to perfect the con, late nights compiling colleges of meaning, days of mapping links for instant flow. I scoured the charity shops for costumes, scouted the towns for venues, and let myself be swindled to study the competition. I admit I enjoyed it at first, found it almost addictive. The more I knew about the tarot symbolism, the easier it became to construct a fitting story. Sometimes the cards would fall into such perfect alignment that I hardly needed a response to so intuitive guesswork as spiritual inspiration. But any poker player knows it's a mistake to trust in the luck of the draw, so I kept my discipline. That is, until Clara. <laughs> Fiction at the Friary and on Campus was presented by Madeline Darcy and Daniel McLaughlin. Location introductions by J.P. Quinn. Produced by Kieran Hurley for UCC 98.3 FM. This programme 
was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.